This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. America is in a crisis right now, and it has been in a crisis for the last several months, starting with the declaration of the global pandemic. What concerns a lot of us, though, is how to understand our current situation in light of Scripture, because Second Timothy 3 does warn us that in the last days, perilous times will come. And we also see examples in the Bible of how the Lord judges nations. Are we under judgment? Are these days just a foreshadow of what is to come? After all, Jesus responded to the disciples' question in Matthew 24, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, by saying that nation would rise up against nation and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes, and all these are the beginning of the birth pains. Well, we're going to explore all these questions today with Bible prophecy expert Dr. Mark Hitchcock, Associate Professor of Dallas Theological Seminary, Pastor of Faith Bible Church, and author of more than 30 books. His latest really helpful title is called Corona Crisis, Plagues, Pandemics, and the coming apocalypse. Mark, it's just so great to have you back on the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me back again. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's always an honor to talk to you. I'm glad you're here. Do you think the coronavirus pandemic and the shuttering of businesses and the shuttering of churches, maybe even now these widespread riots, is all of this a harbinger of the end times? Because I know you talk in the book about the fact that this all kind of has a, an apocalyptic feel to it. Well, um, yes, I, I believe it is, you know, because I believe it does, because what we see, I think, right today, happening today is a convergence of just so many different things, you know, added on to that, you know, I've just seen that, you know, there's going to be, uh, this is maybe the, you know, the most um, active hurricane season in many years, you know, uh, coming upon us, oh, and no. you know, had locust plagues in the Middle East, and all these various things. I do believe these are signs. I don't kind of in distinction to a lot of prophecy teachers, I don't see what we see happening today as the direct fulfillment of like certain prophecies, but I see it, the word I like to use is like a foreshadow or a foreshock of what's coming. And so we see these events that are happening that are significant, but we also see the repercussions of these events. Like with, with coronavirus, we see, you know, government seizing more authority. You know, we see all kind of track and trace technology to trace where people are and increasing globalism. So all these kind of things are working together, I think, at the same time. And I do believe that these are uh, signs of the times in which we live. Uh, that the coming of Christ could be very near. Well, it could. I also saw Yellowstone National Park has been having a big series of earthquakes lately as well. They've had, I think, 10 this week and about 34 in the last month. And I thought, okay, Jesus talked about earthquakes as well. This is all sounding very apocalyptic, as you said. Well, it does, you know, and Jesus told us what would happen. He said there'd be earthquakes and there'd be pestilence, there'd be famines, and those are the birth pains. And my view is that those uh, things that are stated in Matthew 24 are events that will happen during the tribulation period. In other words, they're the birth pains that will lead up immediately and directly to the second coming of Jesus at the end of 
uh, the time of tribulation. Uh, one man I, I read years ago made a great statement. I like it. He said, what we're seeing today are kind of the Braxton Hicks contractions. <laughs> you know, these are kind of the, the premature contractions, if you will, yeah. before the real contractions that will come um, during, during the time of the tribulation period. So these are the four shocks if you will, of what's coming. But, you know, also, in, in, as you mentioned in First Timothy 3.1, it says, you know, in the last days, perilous times will come. Uh, the last days is this whole age between the first and second coming of Jesus. But what he's saying there is during this whole period of the last days, there'll be certain periods of time that will be especially perilous. Um, and the word there in the Greek literally means like savage or vicious. Yeah. Um, it's the same word that was used of the demoniacs back in Matthew chapter 8 yeah. uh, that Jesus encountered. So he's saying that th- this whole time of the last days is going to be punctuated by these especially vicious and violent times. And I think um, someone would be hard-pressed not to believe that we're in one of those perilous times of the last days right now. Goodness. Well, when you're looking at the whole issue of plagues and pandemics and the coming apocalypse, as you said, you were making a distinction there from some of the other prophecy experts who have said things like, oh, well, this is maybe a sign of the end and these sorts of things. And I think you make a good argument in the book for why you take the position that you do. But what about God's judgment? I've heard so many Christians talking about that recently. Are we in a time like Habakkuk, where the Lord is raising up various forces to judge our nation for its sin. How in the world do you even figure that out without the Lord speaking directly to it in his word, which he doesn't? Obviously, he doesn't have any chapter in the Bible on America. Here's what I'm doing to you right now. What is your take on it all? Well, we do know that God certainly does judge individuals and he does judge nations. We've seen that many times in the Old Testament scriptures. But every time that we see that in the Old Testament, it clearly tells us that's what God was doing. He did it with the Egyptians. Um, he did it with his own people, uh, with, with the people of Israel several different times. And, and he often did that with plagues. He would send plagues upon them. And uh, but the Bible tells us clearly that was God's judgment. We also know that God is going to judge the world with plagues in the future. Um, Revelation chapter 6 tells us that. But as you just said, right now, we don't have any word from God that what's happening is direct judgment from him. And I have a really simple maxim, you know, when God speaks, we should speak. And when God's silent, we should be silent. Good. So we can't say today that what's happening is the direct judgment of God. We can also say, though, that, you know, ultimately all sickness really is judgment for sin in the general sense, because we live in a fallen world. We live in a groaning creation according to Romans chapter 8. So in the general sense, obviously all sickness is due to sin, but I don't think we can say this particular pandemic is uh, the, the result of God's judgment, but I think we could say at least at a minimum, certainly that God is using it as a dramatic wake-up call uh, for, to, to people, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's kind of God's megaphone to wake people up. There was a, a poll done not long ago um, when this pandemic started and 44% of Americans said that they believed that this was um, a, a message that God was sending us to kind of wake people up, to turn back to God, or a sign of God's judgment, or both. Yeah. Almost half the people, the, the likely voters. And so uh, there seems to be that sense out there. I don't think we can say that specifically, but it certainly is a wake-up call, and it's a great opportunity. Uh, right now for believers to uh, be spreading and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. Now, when we, I appreciate what you said there about sickness in general being a way that God judges sin, and I agree with you there. But when we're talking about plagues and pandemics in particular throughout the course of Scripture, 
are they usually used by God as a specific judgment for a specific sin? What is the general revealing when you look at the whole subject throughout the Bible? Well, of course, with, you know, the Egyptians, you know, God sent plagues upon the Egyptians. It was, you know, direct disobedience of God of what he was telling Pharaoh to do. Um, the Philistines were, were, plagues were sent upon them when they captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they, they wouldn't return that to the Jewish people. So God sent physical plagues upon them. God sent plagues upon Israel when David, uh, King David numbered his people. Um, took a census. God didn't want him relying on numbers and his own military might. So it was always in, in, in kind of uh, given directly to a specific sin that was committed. It wasn't just kind of sin in general as much. Um, and that's the, in the future, though, you know, judgment's going to be sent in the form of plagues on the whole world. I mean, yeah. it's going to be a global pandemic. It's going to kill a fourth of the people in the, on the earth. Right. Um, but um, I, so it does seem in the past it was sent more for these specific type incidents that would take place with, within nations. And really, in each of those cases, they were warned as well by God. Mm. And there were warnings that were sent before them. Um, and, and I think today, you know, God always warns before ultimately he judges. And we could see what's happening today, maybe not as a direct judgment from God, but certainly God may be allowing it as a wake up call or kind of even a warning, maybe even a final warning. Well, that and that exactly. So that comes up to the issue of judgment by abandonment, a la Romans one. What is your thought on that particular uh, possibility that God is abandoning us and that's part of the abandonment of judgment? Well, no, I think that's certainly true. I mean, Romans chapter 1, um, you know, part of God's judgment, there's kind of his direct judgment. There's the, the, the ultimate eschatological judgment in the future. There's the judgment of hell. But there's this abandonment wrath where God takes his hands off and, uh, you know, no longer has his hand of protection upon the nation. And, you know, we don't know how many times in the past God may have stayed, you know, pandemics like this or prevented them from coming. True. And now he's allowing them to happen. And, of course, all the, the unrest we see in our culture today, I mean, it's like the demons of violence have kind of been loosed upon us. Oh, it sure seems that way. There's a lot more to talk about. We'll talk more after this break. Dr. Mark Hitchcock with us. Corona Crisis is his book. And we'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. What happens when an abortion-minded woman sees her baby's heartbeat for the first time? Here's how a nurse describes the power of ultrasound. When she saw the picture of her baby on ultrasound and saw that beating heart, it was a defining moment that just broke her. And 
she said, I just can't allow this baby to be killed. By letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby in her womb, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Then we were able to share the gospel. Sometimes we were able to give out a Bible if they're open and just minister to her the scientific truth and God's love. I cannot tell you how many times a baby's life is saved through ultrasound. It's just an incredible tool. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. One ultrasound is just $28 or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back, and thank you for being with us. Dr. Mark Hitchcock is here, Bible prophecy expert, associate professor of Dallas Theological Seminary and pastor of Faith Bible Church. His new book is called Corona Crisis, Plagues, Pandemics, and the Coming Apocalypse. And I always appreciate his perspective because he knows so much about the end of days and revelation and all of the prophecies throughout Scripture. You know, Mark, we were talking about coronavirus in the context of judgment and in the context of other plagues and pandemics that God has sent throughout history. Now, here's something else that has come up that it's kind of a weird scenario. When you look at previous pandemics, many more people were wiped out. I mean, we're seeing a morbidity rate on this coronavirus that is extremely small. You, you have a lot of people contracting it, but very few people actually dying of it. And then right in the wake of these shutdowns being imposed on the American people, you have these riots. And now everybody's kind of forgotten about it. What social distancing, you know, who, who cares about that anymore? Because we've got rioters in the streets. Do you see any sort of connection whatsoever between the idea that people are now having that the coronavirus was overblown to potentially set the stage for the riots? I mean, what are your thoughts on that whole score? Well, you know, I don't know that that, there, that it was, you know, overblown because they, people knew these riots were coming. Obviously, people didn't know that, you know, this was going to happen uh, to Mr. Floyd and, and all of that. But, sure. you know, but I think, again, opportunists always sees these things. You know, it's like, you know, Rahm Emanuel, who was the, the uh, chief of staff for President Obama, said, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yep. And so I think that's what's happening in all of these cases nowadays. And with the media that we have today and, and you know, just the bombardment 24-7, these things just spin out of control very quickly. And I think, you know, with coronavirus, we may not have seen the end of it either. I know, you know, there was a protest over in Tulsa and, a you know, a local football player here went to that and he got coronavirus. And mm-hmm. so I think we're, you know, all these people being this close together not social distancing, obviously, could flare this whole thing back up again. Of course, no one's talking about that right now. Yeah, you're right. But but a lot of people are, are seizing these opportunities, globalists, uh, anarchists, um, all kinds of people are seizing all these things that are happening to try to leverage these to kind of, you know, promote their own agenda, whatever it may be. But I think, you know, we can see how ultimately someone like the final Antichrist, who's going to come on the scene, He's going to use all of these things, you know, every kind of crisis, the technology that's available, all of that to control people's lives. And we're seeing the foreshadows of that, you know, powerfully today with uh, with coronavirus. But, you know, also with, with this with this social unrest, I mean, there, there are people out there mixing all this up 
And, um, you know, I think we're naive if we fail to see that. Oh, I think you're right. You do something very good in the book. You have this section where you compare these parallels between Matthew 24 and Luke 21 with Revelation 6 and 7 on this issue of pestilence. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I'm sure there are people in the listening audience who don't really have not considered that before, that there actually are those kinds of parallels between what the Lord said and then what the Lord says in Revelation on the issue of pestilence. Yes, and Jesus in Matthew 24 and in the parallel accounts in Luke 21, that's often called the mini-apocalypse, and Jesus gave that two days before he died on the cross, kind of his, you know, Reader's Digest kind of condensed version of the end times. And Jesus gave these signs of his coming, and the first thing he mentions is there will be uh, false messiahs, false Christs. Well, when you go over to Revelation chapter 6, which I think is kind of the beginning there, the opening of the, the seals, it's the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, the first seal there is a rider on a white horse, right. which I think is a counterfeit messiah, so it's a parallel there. Then the next thing Jesus mentions in Matthew 24 is you know, wars, wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And in Revelation 6, the rider on the second horse, rider on the red horse, is warfare. Then the next thing Jesus mentions is famine. And you go to, to uh, Revelation 6, you have the rider on the black horse. Then you have earthquakes and, and pestilence. You go to the rider on the fourth horse, the pale rider, and uh, it speaks of, of famine and, and uh, pestilence and these things that will kill one-fourth of the earth. So there's a clear parallel between these passages. And the reason that's important is a lot of people take Matthew 24 and the, the, the things that are mentioned there, the signs, as things that are happening today, yep. you know, that the birth pains are happening now. When you, when you see the correspondence of those with, with Revelation 6, Revelation 6 clearly is during the future time of the tribulation. Right. So I think then we have to put the signs in Matthew 24, um, you know, in, the, in that same period of time as well. So, again, that's why today I would say what we see aren't the birth pains of Matthew 24, but they're the foreshocks of those birth pains that are coming. Well, now, when we're looking at the situation we're in today, it, it's interesting. You had mentioned that poll that took place where you had almost half of Americans saying this is God giving us a wake-up call with this coronavirus. I'm curious what you are hearing and seeing about any difference it's making in terms of people repenting of their sins and actually wanting to seek the Lord, because ideally that's what you would hope would come about and what you would pray for. But it often isn't the case. And and that's not often the case in the Bible either. When God sends sends judgments, there's often more of a hardening of hearts. How do you how do you feel about that situation? Well, I think it always cuts both ways. Um, I, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the name Greg Laurie, a pastor in, in uh, California. Mm-hmm. I've uh, talked with him a little bit here lately just about some prophetic issues and different things. He told me that since coronavirus started, um, they have a, a weekly program and people can push a button on their if they've accepted Christ. They've had 50,000 responses wow. since the middle of March. That's great. Last week, they had, last week they had 3,700, he told me. That's wonderful. And he wasn't bragging about it. He was just sharing with me as another pastor. And um, I know some of my other friends who are pastors, especially in California, the, the number of people watching live on their services and responding has been has been incredible. And uh, we've seen that even at our church. And we, we're, we're back meeting in person now. But the number of people watching um, online has been has gone way up. Now, yeah, we don't know what that means exactly, how that's translating into changed lives and changed hearts. But I think what we can at least say, there does seem to be a, an increased interest 
uh, in these things. And again, what, how much that will translate into true repentance and, and true conversion of people's hearts and lives. But, you know, again, I think our responsibility as the Church is to try to um, use these times when people are more open and they're transparent to, to get the Gospel out, do what we can do, and then ultimately, of course, we have to leave the results of that up, up to God. Well, we do. And and that is very encouraging to hear about people coming to know the Lord. That's what we would want. And that's what we pray for, obviously. Now, when we're talking about the the book of Revelation, and I know you talk, for example, you said in the book you were actually at Armageddon, weren't you, when the coronavirus yeah. hit? You were over, So that must have been a little jarring for you as well. Yes, we were over in Israel. We left on February the 28th, my wife and I, and the group joined us later. We were over in Israel during while all this basically was kind of breaking out. You know how it is when you're on a trip in Israel. You're kind of a little bit insulated when you're there, and you're just kind of doing your tour. But we'd come home at night and watch the news, and you know people barely got back on their flights. We were one of the last groups to get out there on, on March the 13th. But yes, part of our tour was we were at Armageddon. And when I got back, I was it was kind of ironic a little bit, I read in an article somewhere they said Armageddon has been closed down. <laughs> well, that'd be kind of ironic. Armageddon's closed, you know, due to coronavirus. So, you know, it's always good to get a little bit of laughs in these difficult times if we can. But For sure. um, anyway, so yeah, we, it was surreal. Um, you know, we, we've run out of adjectives to describe these times: surreal and unprecedented and strange yeah. and and all. But it certainly was surreal being in Armageddon while all this was going on. That is wild. And I know you were teaching on Revelation at the time, but you know, when you're looking at Revelation and you're seeing, as, as I think you're absolutely right about this, these aren't necessarily the birth pangs that are discussed in the Olivet Discourse, because as you mentioned before, birth pangs also ha- ha- tend to happen in a very short period of time, right before the event, right? Um, right. But yet you have a lot of Americans who are very anxious right now and are looking for answers, are looking for peace. And even Christians are, are looking and, and saying, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, what, how should we feel about all of this? How do you really assure Christians biblically and th- uh, how, how to think biblically at a time like this, despite what we do or don't know about God's specific judgment? Well, you know, I always begin just trying to have a perspective, and I know these can sound, these kinds of statements can sound a little bit cliche, but, you know, heaven has an occupied throne. And uh, when we read the book of Revelation, in fact, the book of Revelation, when you read it, it's fascinating. It ping-pongs back from scenes in heaven to scenes on earth. You know, a scene in heaven and a scene on earth. And it's showing us throughout the book of Revelation that everything that's happening on earth is being controlled by God in heaven. And I think that's the perspective we have to begin with. You know, God's never caught off guard. God's never taken by surprise with what's happening. And we have to really believe that. And it has to become part of a real part of our thinking. So I think I begin just with that perspective that God is on his throne. God sees what's happening. God is in control of what's happening, even if it, even if it doesn't look that way or appear that way. Yeah. Um, another thing I think we need to do is pray. I think we need to be people of prayer. We need a, a, real, uh, a real deep and a robust prayer life. And probably a lot more people have been praying recently maybe than before. Yes. Um, and God uses that to draw us near to him. Yeah. And I think we also need to use these kind of opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Um, again, to have a little bit of a sense of urgency in our lives to tell people we know about Jesus Christ. I know I've experienced that in my own life. You know, who, who are the people I need to be talking to and, and telling about Christ? So, you know, we, rather than sitting around and, and, and allowing just fear and worry and all of that to overcome us, 
we need to get a, an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective. You know, be, be seeking God in prayer and, and praying to Him about these things and laying them out before Him. But also, rather than just sitting around, you know, wringing our hands about it, let's be out. Uh, you know, Jesus said, "Occupy until I come. Do yeah. business until yeah. I come back." We need to be doing business. Uh, we don't know when He's coming. So those are just some practical things. I think that hopefully we'll keep us busy doing what God wants us to do and also give us hope in these times in which we live. Well, that's a really good perspective. And I appreciate that you mentioned in the course of the book, we also should be looking ahead to the final judgment. It should always help us keep in view. There is a judgment coming. Life on earth is finite. There are people who are lost who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a great time, uh, just like any time, but especially now, this is a great time to share the good news of Jesus with people who need to hear it. Dr. Mark Hitchcock, the name of the book, Corona Crisis. Thank you so much, Mark. It was great to have you here. Well, thank you. God bless you. God bless you, too. Thanks for being with us. We'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. As you know, the Trump administration has already set forth its intention to declare Antifa a terrorist organization, and I support that wholeheartedly. There is a story out now from the Washington Times saying activists of Antifa began planning to foment a nationwide anti-government insurgency as early as November, as the U.S. presidential campaign season kicked off in earnest. This is according to a law enforcement official with access to intelligence behind this shadowy group. Who knew? Antifa already planning nationwide riots. It had nothing to do with George Floyd's death. What a shock. Anybody shocked by this? Well, of course, you have people who are in the streets who are genuinely upset about George Floyd. I'm certainly not discounting that. But the, the, the looting, the killing, the property damage, all of the stuff that's been going on in our city streets, the the smashing of windows and defacing of churches and synagogues across America. This was planned a long time ago. The report goes on to say the radical movement has emerged as a key focus for investigators in the wake of these violent protests and looting. The law enforcement official would not speak on the record about Antifa's plans as the election season heats up. But longtime analysts of the group say such a move would be entirely in character. Quoting former National Security Council staff member Rich Higgins, uh, they said Antifa's actions represent a hard break with the long tradition of a peaceful political process in the U.S., Their Marxist ideology seeks not only to influence elections in the short term, but to destroy the use of elections as the determining factor in political legitimacy. It's just a revolution. It's just upend everything. Take the tablecloth, rip it off the dining room table and send all of the dishes and all of the glasses and silverware flying into the air. And who cares where it lands? Who cares? These are not people who are concerned about what comes afterward. If they think that there's some sort of peaceful, wonderful utopia that will spontaneously combust and erupt from the ground in the wake of all of their property damage and looting and killing, then they're killing themselves. They're really dead in the head, if you want to say it that way. They have absolutely no idea what they're doing. 
because who wants to live in total anarchy? Not even the anarchists want to live in total anarchy. It's, it's just, you know, it's an immature way of thinking. If you look, for example, at the Soviet system, they, you know, were all for police and public order after the revolution had ended, weren't they? Look at the, look at how much we had in the way of secret police in the old Soviet Union and how things were so controlled. They were for public order as long as they were in charge. I remember being in Moscow when I was in high school, when we went on our school trip to Moscow with our Russian language program. And we were walking around Moscow and it was just so safe. And we were talking to our tour guide and she said, oh, it's incredibly safe. You could take the subway at 2 a.m. by yourself as a woman and you'd be totally safe. Absolutely nothing would happen to you. And as American teenagers, we all said, that's unbelievable. Why is that? How how in the world do you keep such order? Well, because they don't want to be shipped off to gulags <laughs> or work camps, let's say. It wasn't a gulag per se at that point, but work camps. They don't want to have severe penalties by the communist government. It's amazing how fear will work on people's psyches when they're thinking of committing a little bit of petty crime or even serious crime. So don't fool yourselves. This work of Antifa is not all about having permanent chaos. It's just to upend the United States. And when the chaos does the trick, then what? I don't know. Just whatever they feel like next. Now, we know Marxists actually have more of a plan than that. So we look at the Marxist revolutionaries behind Black Lives Matter, and we know that they have a little bit more thought out plan. Antifa is just, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're obviously Marxists as well, but... As far as what they're doing and where they're going, a lot of Americans just have no idea. Now, I really appreciate the work of James O'Keefe, as you know, over at Project Veritas. We've had him on the show before. They are now out with a a video here on Antifa. They apparently had a, a guy who infiltrated Antifa, the Rose City Antifa. And it was kind of interesting to see. It's only a four minute or about five minute video right now revealing what went on inside this particular group. But listen to this. This is cut one. Rose City Antifa holds required lectures for prospecting members in secret at, in other words, bookstore before they open. And as part of their security culture, they require us to put our phones in the bathroom and next door. Uh, this bathroom is not only away from the main room where the lecture is taking place, but also has a fan that muffles any sound from the room. The whole goal of this, right, is to get out there and do dangerous things as safely as possible. How violent is Antifa or RCA in particular? Practice things like an eye gouge. It takes very little uh, pressure to injure someone's eyes. All right, practice things like an eye gouge. Just practice things like an eye gouge, Antifa says. Just go ahead with that. That'll be an effective tool to get people all upset. And it goes on. Listen to cut two. They do not hesitate to either push back or incite some kind of violence. In our classes and in our meetings, before we do uh, any sort of demonstration or black block, you know, we talk about weapons detail and what we carry and what we should have. What is black block? Well, this is black block right now. The term is used to uh, a tactic in which individuals conceal their identity to look uniform so, so that no one can be identified in an act of a crime. With RCA, it seems much more structured, almost like a company or like a business. So, you know, I feel like there is some type of outside funding influence or resources being used. Consider like destroying your enemy, not like delivering a really awesome right hand, right eye, left eye blow, you know? Um, 
not boxing. It's not kickboxing. It's like destroying your enemy. It's like destroying our enemy. Literally destroying our enemy. Yeah, we know. David Dorn. Hashtag David Dorn. You know, look at all these people. Chris Beatty, some of the names of those dear, precious black lives who didn't matter to Antifa and Black Lives Matter when they were storming our major cities. We've got to bust these guys. That's all there is to it. And I'm very grateful for this kind of investigative journalism. And I thought for a moment, isn't it amazing that James O'Keefe has to do this? And you don't see NBC or ABC or CBS or CNN doing things like this. You don't have any kind of investigative reporting on Antifa to root them out as American enemies, as people committing treason. And it's funny because people are talking about how unprecedented this is. These attacks were very much coordinated. And as there have been interviews done with law enforcement officials, more and more they're confirming that it was coordinated. But I think this was a good point brought up by Ken Braun over at the Capitol Research Center, where he says, Antifa, we have been here before with the weathermen. You remember Bill Ayers? Oh, yeah. Barack Obama was his disciple. Beginning in 1969, Ken writes, following many years of large and largely peaceful demonstrations against the Vietnam War, a new player split away from the farthest fringes of Students for a Democratic Society on the anti-war left. And that was the Weatherman movement. Rather than seeking a change in American policy, the Weathermen wanted nothing less than the overthrow of America. And rather than peacefully protest, they set off bombs targeting police, military military service personnel and government buildings. In the beginning, the weathermen were clearly trying to kill people, and early on they succeeded in injuring police officers. And it started with the Days of Rage. An October 1969 riot in Chicago instigated by the weathermen that left one city attorney a quadriplegic. The whole idea of starting this riot and then going to war with the U.S. government was so outlandish that emissaries of Fidel Castro's Cuban communist state tried to warn the weathermen off and into peaceful protests, but they didn't listen. And then as now, this damages the reputations of peaceful demonstrators who are often forced to answer for the violence. Well, I don't care. You know what? If you're a peaceful protester and you're standing by as people are smashing and looting, then you need to drop out or else you're enabling it. Sorry. Former leftist SDS leader Todd Gitlin of the Weathermen said they bear a heavy responsibility for having destroyed the new left, which was the most promising left development in 50 years in America. Okay. Prefiguring President Trump and Antifa, Gitlin in 2008 denounced the Weathermen as failed terrorists. That's exactly what they are. They're terrorists. And CNN seemed to be saying something similar of Antifa in August 2017 when they credited them with being at the scene of many violent street disturbances and said the group was often classified as hard left and opposed to capitalism and stated that their methods are often violent. It's time to break up this group and arrest these people and get to the bottom of who is funding all of this and arrest those people as well. I couldn't agree more than I did as I did yesterday with David Horowitz when he was making the same point. We're going to go to a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. 
my four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, Christians have heard a lot of lectures from the secular leftist media over the past few years about how we should vote. But of course, they're hardly qualified to think biblically about the issue. So this week, the Family Research Council and 21 state family policy councils published biblical principles for political engagement, worldview issues in voting. And it is designed to help Christians think biblically about taking part in America's civic process. So we're going to talk about it now with the author, David Clausen, who is FRC's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical World. View. David, great to have you with us. How are you? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Janet. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for being here. And I, I think you're right. One of the things that you say in this publication is that the toxic tone and the extremely partisan nature of our political system discourages many Christians from even studying what the Bible teaches about government. Where do we begin in this discussion about Christians even getting involved in politics? It seems weird that anybody would think we shouldn't. But how do we delineate that issue and say, yeah, we should be involved in politics? politics. Yeah, you're absolutely right to point that out. And, you know, I think the place to start is, especially as Christians, we just need to remember uh, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has implications for all areas of life, and that includes politics. And as Christians, we, we know that, you know, Jesus, last week of uh, his life, he was asked, you know, what is, he was, they were testing him, and they said, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then the second command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And kind of the way I think about political engagement, my political theology is, how can I say I truly love my neighbor unless I'm engaging in this area that has such profound consequences for our basic rights and our liberties? So I think that's one place we can begin. 
Right. Right. Well, that is important because politics is life. I mean, like it or not, you can talk about being very highbrow and I, I'm not so low as to get involved in politics because politics has a dirty name for many reasons as of but the reputation of many politicians. But all of these things that are done in the political realm affect life for Christians. I mean, we're seeing that now with the COVID-19 crisis and all these churches that have had to go to court just to open back up a little bit. No, that's absolutely right. And, you know, a lot of these issues, I think that a lot of Christians say, oh, maybe this is a political issue. Well, I'd actually, I actually push back and say, well, actually, first and foremost, a lot of these issues that we deal with are theological issues, uh, first and foremost. Just take, for example, the issue of human life, abortion. Uh, that is, first and foremost, not an issue of political right or political left. That's an issue of moral right and moral wrong. Yeah. And I think that's why Christians need to realize that, you know, what we the world and the secular culture is described as political. These are deeply theological and biblical issues that we have to be uh, engaged on, and we need to, we absolutely have to care about them. Right, for sure. So you're looking at the Bible here to look at some sort of set of principles that we might use in order to help navigate the field of politics. What would some of those principles be? Yeah, what I do in this publication is obviously I look at some of the big issues. Um, I say, you know, the Bible speaks to so many different issues, whether that's human life, marriage, religious liberty, poverty, economics. Uh, You know, the Bible speaks to all of these issues, but let's be honest that there are some issues that the Bible speaks to more clearly than others. I I like to say that there's a thus saith the Lord on some of these first-tier moral issues, and I, I think that's important to realize Another thing I would say is um, when we as Christians engage, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, we need to speak the truth in love. And I think that as Christians, we need to focus on the issues, but we also need to be winsome in, in the way we approach it and realize that everyone we're engaging with is someone who's made in God's image, someone that God loves and ultimately sent his son to die for. Well, that's right. We have to fundamentally remember that all of us are created in the image of God and that all of us are important to God. And yet, how should that inform particular issues? For example, you mentioned the issue of abortion. The pro-life issue is fundamentally a moral issue. And yet you will have some people in church circles, I won't necessarily call them Christians. Uh, I don't know if they are or not, but but they'll say things like, well, the, the word abortion is never in the Bible. What about those sorts of issues where people get very particular and say, well, if the The word is not there, and if Jesus doesn't explicitly condemn homosexuality, then it's not anything that Jesus cares about. Well, let's just take those two issues you just mentioned, and I would I would push back gently but firmly um, on those issues, and I'd say, well, on the abortion, on the status of the unborn, uh, the Bible is straightforward. Life begins at conception; abortion is murder. Just see. Uh, golly, at the top of my head, Psalm 139, uh, Jeremiah 1.5, Galatians 1.15. Um, and then on marriage, uh, the Bible is very clear and presenting marriage as a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. Uh, that's Genesis 2.24, Matthew 19.5, Mark 10.6-9. Um, and then Scripture's very clear. It's unambiguous regarding the moral status of homosexual conduct, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 1. Yeah. And so for people who would push back and say the Bible doesn't deal with these, I think those people actually 
haven't read the scripture, <laughs> and they need to go back to see what the text actually says. Right, right. They're looking for a little bit of a loophole. Well, if I can find, you know, if I cannot find a verse that speaks explicitly in this particular gospel about this particular issue, you know, then I, I'm off the hook in some respects. But all of scripture has to be taken together. So when you're looking at the concept of voting, one of the things that has been coming up over the last several years is this issue of the lesser of two evils. Uh, we've had a lot mm-hmm. of never Trump pushback against the majority of evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, saying, oh, you you threw all your principles to the wind. But isn't there some truth to this you know, aspect of, of saying every time I go into a voting booth, I'm voting for who's better, not who's perfect? Well, absolutely, Janet. That's how I definitely saw the last election. And we, we need to realize what we're doing when we're voting. When we, when we go into that voting booth, you know, we are exercising uh, God-ordained authority that he delegates to us. When we vote, the thinking through the lens of Romans 13, we are delegating authority that God has given to us. And absolutely, when we are choosing between candidates, we are always, unless Jesus Christ is on the ballot himself, we're always choosing between the lesser of two evils. And I think that's why it's so important as Christians to make sure that we are filtering all issues, all candidates, and all party platforms through uh, a biblical worldview, through a biblical lens, and especially that last thing, the the party platforms is so important. I do get into that in this publication, Um, and it's important for all your listeners to know, um, you know, 80% of the time, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you vote in line with your party platform. So if you want to know what the worldview of a party is, go read that platform, and I, I try to do that in this publication to show the first tier moral issues I wish it weren't the case, but increasingly so, one of those parties is taking positions that are contrary to what the Bible teaches. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the reality. So you are trying to get this publication out, I know, to thousands of people. Um, wh- what is your biggest concern, David, if, and also from Family Research Council, heading into the next election in terms of the most important issues on the table? Yeah, great question, Jan. And I would say here at FRC, you know, the most important issues that we're engaged on is, of course, the life issue, the religious liberty issue. You know, one thing that um, many of us here, we were going into the Trump administration, we were a little, you know, let's be real, President Trump didn't have a a record on these issues that we care so deeply about. Well, he now has a record, and we've been so happy. Many of us have been happy to be wrong. Um, uh, on the issue of life, on the issue of religious liberty, that he's really gone to bat for these issues. And uh, we're encouraging him to continue to do that. But as far as the election, you know, we want people of faith uh, to make sure that they're voting their values and that they're informed about um, where the two parties stand on major issues um, from the top of the ticket all the way to uh, the school board. Excellent. What about pastors and the role of pastors, David? Because there are a lot of pastors who don't want to touch politics with a 10-foot pole, but I think more and more it's becoming necessary for those pastors to take a stand. How do you advise them to do so? So when I sat down to write this, I actually had pastors. This is is for all Christians and all, all people of faith, but specifically I had pastors in mind, specifically because in the last election cycle, there were some prominent pastors who would say, I'll preach on issues when they come up in the text, but beyond that, I don't really want to get involved in the the world of politics. I don't want to do voter registration. I don't want to do voter guides. And the thing, and I I talk to pastors every day, you know, I, I want you to shepherd your people well. And if they're not hearing from you about these important issues, they're going to be hearing it from the culture. And they're not going to be hearing it from a biblical perspective if they're listening to 
you know, cable TV or social media. And so I think our pastors have a really significant role to play when it comes to equipping their people for faithful, God-honoring political engagement. Yeah, and that's such a good point, because I know there have been studies done on the fact that most Christians really want that from their pastors, and yet, in large measure, they're not getting that. So that's something that pastors can keep in mind as we head closer to November of 2020. Well, the name of the publication is Biblical Principles for Political Engagement, Worldview Issues, and Voting. You can go to frc.org and find out more. And David Clausen, the author of that publication, has been joining us from the Family Research Council. Thank you so much, David. Really appreciate all of the work you guys do. And thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it, Janet. Anytime. God bless you. David Clausen from the Family Research Council. That's going to do it for me for another show. We really appreciate your tuning in as we appreciate it every single day. So thank you so much. God bless you. And we'll see you next time.